Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings, with two B's on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man behind all things Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. Speaking of Sasta, Sasta Annual 2018 is drawing closer and closer, and for me, there are two incredible benefits of going. The first is obviously networking with the best and brightest in the industry, but then second, learning, and learning from incredible people, like the guest on the show today, an exec with over 25 years' experience in the industry, who's created one of the core sales methodologies used globally today. That learning to experience live in the flesh is really incredible. And if you use the promo code drinks with Harry, those three words drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets, not only will you get 10% off the ticket price, but also unlimited mojitos with me. What more could you want? Courtesy of the kind Mr. Jason Lemkin. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But I've touched on our guests slightly today. And so I'm thrilled to welcome Lars Nilsson to the hot seat today. Now Lars is the VP of global inside sales for Cloudera. With over 25 years of sales and operations experience, Lars really is a global leader in enterprise software and selling solutions. One of Lars's many incredible achievements was he and his team at Cloudera built the sales methodology account-based sales development, which has transformed how businesses approach high-value targets. And prior to Cloudera, Lars founded SalesSource, a business services consulting firm specializing in CRM customization and sales process development. Lars has also served in sales exec roles at ArcSight, Hewlett-Packard, Riverbed Technology, and Portal Software, all three of which IPO'd, in addition to Cloudera in 2017. As special advisor to True Ventures, Lars also helps True portfolio companies develop sales compensation plans from the ground up, implement best-of-breed sales technologies, and much more. I do also want to say a huge thank you to both John Callahan at True Ventures and Jason Lemkin at Sasta for the intro to Lars today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, you must check out Datadog. Datadog takes care of the complex task of managing metrics on the back end, instead of figuring out how and where to store your data, you get to focus on actually using the data to make better decisions. With turnkey integrations, Datadog seamlessly aggregates metrics and events across the full DevOps stack, from automation tools to source control and bug tracking to databases and common server components. And that's why thousands of enterprises love and trust Datadog, from eBay to Samsung to HP. And you can find out more at datadoghq.com. That really is a must. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Infusionsoft, the all-in-one CRM sales and marketing software platform for small businesses with 140,000 users who trust Infusionsoft to close more deals, helping at all stages of the customer journey, from lead capture to nurture and retention automations to online sales and payments, all with a worldwide community of experts dedicated to user success. And you can learn more at Infusionsoft.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Infusionsoft did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. As I've said before, WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Get it at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. However, you've heard quite enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Lars Nilsson, Global Head of Inside Sales at Cloudera. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Lars, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I feel like I've heard so much, be it from Ping at Excel to the team at True. So thank you so much for joining me today, Lars. I appreciate it, Harry. I'm just as excited as you are. Well, I doubt that, but I'd love to kick off today with a little bit about you. And tell me, Lars, how did you make your way into the wonderful world of SaaS in the first place? I think like a lot of other people, it happens by accident. Certainly, uh, I started my career selling copiers at Xerox Corporation, so very much a uh, hardware salesperson. 
person for many, many years. And I was attracted to Silicon Valley back in the mid 90s when all the hype around the Netscape IPO and, and the bubble that was uh, growing then. So I got my start in enterprise class software sales, a small company called Portal Software back in 1995. And then, of course, we all stood by and watched when Mark Benioff launched Salesforce.com and the whole SaaS revolution began. Can I ask you a, a very strange question? 1995, the year before I was born. How have oh, you seen, Jesus. Yeah, so, sorry about that. But how have you seen the industry develop? I mean, it, it's come so far just in my few years in the industry itself recently. How have you seen it develop from those times of 1995 and portal software? I'll tell you the answer that I have from a sales perspective. And it's completely gone through a revolution as far as how to generate demand, how to generate interest for your products and services. I grew up in a time where when I got hired in the late 80s, early 90s by Xerox Corporation, I was handed a gas card and a pager. And then I was given a, a territory and I would drive into my territory, get out of the car and walk up and down the street, knocking on business doors, hoping to get a hold of an office manager so I could take a look at their copier and assess whether or not they needed a new one. And so a sales cycle would start. That is unbelievably different today when someone like me can build an SDR team and have a group of younger in their career people go into the internet, understand the pains that a potential prospect might have, be able to curate out specific individual titled persona people that could and, and might have pain for the software solution that we are selling and have access to their mobile phone, have access to their email address, have access to their personal information to personalize whether it's an email or a voicemail and begin uh, reaching out to them. I mean, it's uh, I wouldn't be able to explain it to anyone that started 20 years ago, certainly not to myself. No, absolutely. It seems worlds away. But you mentioned there the element of building that SDR team. And I want to start today on the element of SDRs. As you've said to me before, the SDRs are perhaps the most important role in all of sales. So I want to start with that. And why do you believe an SDR is, is not just another feature of the sales funnel? What makes these SDRs so special, do you think? Well, it is often a lot of people talk about the sales cycle. How do you get someone to a closed one. I mean, people talk about active selling and doing a proof of concept and going into a buying negotiation cycle and then closing that big deal. Well, it turns out that the hardest part of closing any deal is finding it. If you don't have a deal to work on, you have no chance in hell of closing it. It turns out that in today's day and age, finding the right deals at companies with people who you can buy from is the hardest part. And that is exclusively the job of an SDR. So we've created a role that allows people to do outreach, to manage inbound inquiries, to do cold outreach, to try to energize someone who is willing to have that first 20 to 30 minute call where a deal is created. It turns out that salespeople today, if you're carrying a bag and retiring quota for a software or a SaaS software company, you should be and you want to be negotiating and closing every day, all day. The heavy lifting of beating the bushes and doing all of these activities, cold calls, managing inbound leads is time consuming and it takes uh, a lot of attention, a lot of focus. 
and salespeople typically don't have that because they're singularly focused on trying to close a deal and filling their pipeline, if you will, is probably the heaviest lift in any part of the sales cycle. And again, that's the exclusive domain of the sales development rep. You said there about filling the pipeline, contrarian thought. Is that not the role of marketing to provide leads to the sales team to convert? Is that not what VPs of demand gens and growth hackers are there for? Certainly it is. But again, it's a group effort. If you look at most companies in the Valley today, there are three sources of pipelines. Certainly there's the marketing channel and they're generating interested, whether it's eyeballs or clicks or downloads, whatever the format is. And certainly that is, you know, a lead is something that passes through a sales organization. But there's an equal amount of pressure from the individual sales rep to generate their own activity. And then a lot of other companies have business development or a partner organization where they're doing outreach and generating demand through the partner channel. So if you can get prospects interested in your products through marketing, through your sellers, and through the partner channel, that's kind of like the the holy grail of being able to generate interest and demand from three different sources. Uh, And that's what a lot of companies strive to get to. You said there about kind of the pressure on salespeople. I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of uh, hitting quota and accountability to hitting quota and ensuring that culture, but also not ensuring a culture of kind of fear is imposed. How do you think about kind of ensuring that aim without the fear? Yeah, that's a really good question. And certainly years ago, people were, salespeople would end up joining a company and, and they would get a compensation plan and they would get some, some onboarding product uh, training and knowledge and then off they went and their quotas were often set yearly. And I think a lot of that has changed with SaaS. Uh, we no longer looking at yearly targets, but we've gone to quarterly and monthly and with some companies, sometimes even it's daily or weekly, depending on what it is they're selling. And so getting that quota right is an art in itself. You have onboarding periods, you have ramp times, and certainly as you onboard and hire new reps, you have to get them productive. You have to get them to a place where they have a pipeline big enough to where you can predict their ending point in closed revenue monthly, quarterly, and yearly. And so the art of generating a compensation plan that drives the behavior that you want beyond just revenue, again, the company might have targets of new license revenue. They might have targets of expansion revenue. They might be selling services and training. They might have their eye on making sure that there's a renewal at the end of the year. These are all things and targets that companies want to hit that if they're not kind of sewn into the comp plan, then a rep will go to where their comp plan guides them to accelerators. And so, for instance, if you miss putting a bogey on the renewal that any rep may own in his or her territory, where you don't pay them the same amount of variable for the other targets your company has, and you're going to falter. And so it becomes a huge effort for a company for whether it's the finance team or the sales operations team to guide the right outcome for any company trying to push through. You said to me before that it's all about activities being in sales and selling itself. I'd love to hear what you mean by this first. Yeah. So when I say selling is all about activities, again, in order to get to that big closed deal, right, it, it might start with a phone call made to an inbound lead. It might start with a cold email made to a target persona at a target company. But again, sales is all about the activities of emails and phone calls, conversations, proof of concepts, trials. And these are all things that are measured. 
And it turns out that anything measured improves. So if the systems that you have set up are guiding, whether it's your SDRs or your marketers or your sellers to produce, whether it's this many dials a day, how many of those dials were actual connects versus how many of those dials went to voicemails that were left? If the dial was connected and it was connected for less than 30 seconds, that's interesting. But a connect that went to a 10-minute phone call, certainly something happened, right? The ball, the needle was moved. And these are all things that guide productivity. On my SDR team, we monitor and manage how many dials, how many connects, how many good calls uh, were made. At the same time, emails. Uh, lots of people are using these email sequencing tools. Are your emails being opened and looked at? And are the links within them being clicked on? And are they being taken to different landing zones and pages where they spend X amount of time? These are all things that can be measured. How many replies are you receiving from the account-based sales development campaign that you may have sent to 160 individuals at one company? Again, those are all activities that are generating metrics that allow you to kind of tune the engine and get better. And marketers and sellers are always striving to get better. No, that's fantastic. I, I did want to ask maybe a slightly personal question just in terms of the SDR team that you mentioned there that you run and you've run many more before in the past. I'd love to hear what's like the biggest challenge for you now in managing and scaling up that SDR team. If that's something that would keep you up at night, what would it be? A lot of us in the Valley talk about attrition. And what I mean by that is you hire an SDR onto your team, hoping to develop them, hoping to ramp and onboard and get them productive. But what's happening today is that an SDR that begins to produce and get good, they will get headhunted. They'll get reached out to. They have friends that are doing their jobs at other companies and they'll understand whether or not they're being compensated fairly. They'll understand whether or not they're in a company whose culture and energy and environment is better or worse than things that are going on out there. And again, imagine spending a year getting an SDR um, and again, may take us five to six weeks to fully onboard and ramp an SDR, but then you want them in their seats managing all of these activities, generating appointments that will hopefully move into pipeline and closed revenue. After a year, they decide to leave. And again, that's a real risk and it happens every day and it's forced a lot of leaders like myself to take their SDR teams and move them out of the valley. So two and a half years ago, I made a very conscious decision and I moved the inside sales team to Austin and I began building out the team there. And you know, the good news there in Austin, there's lots of universities and there's lots of talent and it's become kind of an inside sales hotbed. And within a year, I was able to get to 30 SDRs. I would have never been able to do that in San Francisco or anywhere in Northern California. And more and more, you're finding people relocating their, whether it's their call center or their inside sales team, to places like Austin, to places like Raleigh, North Carolina, Texas. Uh, and now I'm starting to hear people move their teams to Boise, Idaho, and to Bend, Oregon. I, I have practically no idea where most of the above names were, but I will pretend like I do in my English accent. Um, but, but I would love to kind of, if we move from a more meta perspective, discuss the sales engine more broadly. I had Paul Woolbright on the show the other day, and he described it not as a sales engine, but as a velocity engine. I'm intrigued with this in mind. How do you view the sales engine itself and how it should work and be structured to you, do you think? Paul is a great man, and I've taken many lessons from him as well. There's no doubt that velocity has everything to do if you're a venture-backed, a SaaS startup. It feels like as soon as one company 
create figures out a niche and a, and a new problem to solve. Many others spring up behind it because there's money to be there. And so everything depends on velocity. Velocity, though, is hard to get. Whether you're a small startup with a handful of founders, you're at scale. It turns out that alignment and communication and culture have everything to do with getting that sales engine to a place where it's actually tuned. It's tuned with technology, it's tuned with process, and it's tuned with people. Back when I started at Xerox, the sales engine was tuned with people first and foremost, then process, and then technology. I think that is completely reversed. And today, many companies are looking at building their engine, their selling engine, their revenue engine with a technology stack that allows sales and marketers to do their jobs faster, better, easier. And I think that's, if I look back in the last 20 years, technology has taken on a role that is more important than ever. It feels like the rock stars of SaaS companies today, they're not the founders, not the engineers or the salespeople. It's the sales operations, sales enablement professionals that are helping sellers onboard more quickly and get to productivity as quickly as possible. And then running as many, whether it's, and I don't want to say sales campaigns or marketing campaigns. I want to just say campaigns to generate interest in the company's products and services. I'm so pleased you said that about kind of the sales enablement element and, and enabling you to be faster and more efficient. I'd love to hear how you view the process in terms of like how long you think it should be from lead to MQL to, to SAL and then to kind of converted opportunity. How do you view that funnel and optimizing that for you and the intricacies within it? Yeah, I love talking about this part of the sale. And I truly believe that if a young startup that has come out with a cool new shiny object, whether it be a product or a service or uh, an idea, whatever it is, you can do more to generate demand and sales if you produce the kind of content that is inspirational, kind of thought leadership and teaching. More and more people today are searching for solutions to their problems. They're not sitting back and unknowing of the problems they have. Every day, people wake up and are trying to do things faster, better, cheaper, easier. And people are connecting with each other more and more and asking their counterparts of other companies, hey, how are you tackling this problem? And so they're out there searching. If as a young startup, you don't have, you know, whether it's a vision blog or a moving infographic or some piece of research that is targeted in, in helping your potential customers understand the problem you're solving, then you don't have assets out there that people can trip over, literally trip over because they're out there looking. If you're not out there for them to trip over to read and to get inspired by and to reach out and to download or do whatever it is they do to kind of generate interest, then you're missing a real opportunity because the heavy lift in generating demand, it's a lot harder to do the outbound than it is to do the, the inbound. And again, I want to be careful here. Certainly marketing organizations do many things to generate inbound interest, but is it the right person at the right company at the right time? Certainly lots of people talk about what is the conversion of an inbound MQL to an opportunity and then a sale. And you'll hear everything from less than 2% to less than 10%. And certainly I know that there's a lot of people in marketing organizations that when they spend the time to generate an inbound inquiry, they would rather have that 
that be followed up on by a live person. That takes energy. That takes a lot of time and a lot of focus and a lot of process and a lot of procedure, a lot of technology. If you can divert people that are not ready to buy or that are just kicking tires and, and looking, and there's a lot of people that want to read something and be left alone and not be followed up on in 3.5 seconds by an SDR with a live chat window popping up and saying, how can I help? And that's happening more and more. And so I think there's a lot of art that goes into combining all of the cool technologies that allow companies to get their message out into the world and manage the inquiries and the, the touch points that they generate through those. I don't know if I've just completely <laughs> confused the audience, but... Uh, no, you haven't uh, You haven't at all, but it leads perfectly to a question that I had, and it's we've spoken before about the importance of focus when for marketers and marketing more specifically. Is that what you mean when you say about kind of content, content creation, building that mindshare? Or how else do you think about kind of focus applied to marketing? I do, but what I mean when it when, when I say, you know, focus is your best friend at every stage in your company's growth, I'm talking more about whom do you believe should be buying your product? And again, if you're a B2B technology company, I hope it's not every single company on the planet um, or every single individual. It's just, it's just too big. I think founders and entrepreneurs need to kind of wake up every day and decide or and marketers and sellers, who should we go after today? And years ago, uh, it was referred to as your target addressable market. More and more today, people are talking about whom their ideal customer profile is. And that is the group of entities, uh, companies out there that you believe in your heart should be looking at your technology and reviewing it and potentially buying it. And what I say to a lot of companies just getting started, you want to pick a number that is addressable by you and your team. And I like to say, try to get it under 5,000. And if you can, try to get it under 2,500 or 1,000. If you have zero customers or 10 customers or 100 customers today, have your addressable market be within a range that you can see in your CRM. 2,500 to 5,000 is fantastic. Once you've identified your ICP, an even more important step is to understand who are the potential buyers of your technology inside that company. People refer to that as who is your buyer persona. And, and the reason that's so important and the beauty of it is that there are services today, LinkedIn Sales Navigator, Discover.org, and there's probably 10 to 20 others that you can subscribe to and pull these individual titles people and get their emails and phone numbers. And why would any marketer or selling organization want to flood the channels with, I don't want to say spam, but you know, watered down messages that go out to many people in many companies. If you've identified that the director of data architecture at Visa is someone whom you believe would understand the messages that you're emailing out to them, then the odds of them opening that email and reading further are much higher. Mm-hmm. And so what we've done at Cloudera, certainly we've identified our ideal customer profile. I mean, we've also indexed and cataloged all of the people that we've sold to over the last six years. We have over a thousand enterprise class customers. We can look in our CRM and understand all of the people we interacted with early in the sales cycle, mid-stage in the sales cycle, and at the very end of the sales cycle. And we know, you know, typically there's anywhere from five to 15, sometimes 25 people that we're interacting 
with in a six to nine to 12 month sales cycle, then it's very easy to go and take those titles, those personas, apply them to another company that you're targeting and begin to do outreach. A lot of people are talking about account-based marketing, account-based sales. And that's where I think the shift has been happening over the last three years. Instead of using a marketing automation system like Enveloqua, like a Marketo, and blasting your leads database where there may be thousands, tens of thousands, you're now targeting individuals at companies and you can focus the, the message. Can I ask, at what point is, price-wise, at what point is ABM effective and cost-effective, more importantly? Is right. it $5,000 plus, $10,000 plus? Because that personalization and time is probably cost-inefficient in you know SMB cases. Yeah, and a lot of people talking about that. Again, at Cloudera, we sell platform as a service to enterprise class, you know, billion dollar plus revenue companies. So I'm probably not the best person to answer that, but I do know that we benefit from a large organization having many personas, many individuals that would care about a cloud era, big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence solution. And so when we do an outbound campaign into a single account, we don't have one person that we believe would be interested in receiving our message. We have, in some cases, hundreds. And so it becomes extremely cost-effective if we're going after a very big fish target. We don't have one person to do outreach to. We have many, many. to do. So uh, for us, account-based marketing, account-based sales development works gloriously. I think if you're selling a point solution and there's only one or two people that would care about hearing about it in any company, I don't know if the economics or the metrics are there. But I do want to move into our favorite element of the show. Lars is 60 seconds faster. 60 seconds per question. How does that sound? Okay, this is going to be interesting. So I got <laughs> it. I'm very good on my feet. So let's, let's, you, let's go. You will be fine. I got a tip from Ping who suggested I ask this. I'm starting an inside sales team. What advice do you have for me? Broad strokes. I'm starting from ground zero. I would spend as much time with the people in marketing as I could. More and more, everything I do within my sales development team starts with how can I fill my SDRs funnel with true qualified inbound inquiries, the right people at the right company. So I would spend, before I hire an SDR, and align with the people in marketing to make sure that if we're going to invest in a lead ingest engine like the SDR or a outbound messaging engine, what the SDR team have, have become in a lot of organizations, uh, make sure you're aligned with marketing. And instead of it being them and us, do everything together. I would also uh, spend a lot of time thinking through the technology stack, the efficiency gains, the speed gains, the, you know, the velocity that happens when you connect the right systems on top of your CRM and marketing automation uh, can launch you into places you never thought possible. My word, that does sound exciting. Sales rep productivity, what's good to you, do you think? I don't want anyone to underestimate the value of a great sales manager, a great SDR manager, a great outside sales manager. I think sales reps who onboard into a company are money motivated and they're looking to get a comp plan and their product training and then they want to be let loose. But as you begin to scale and bring on more people, a really great manager, I think, is also a lost art. You have to align your sales organization and the many parts of it to the goals of the company. And sales reps have a way of looking at the comp plan and finding the quickest path to multipliers versus the quickest path to aligning to the company's goals of you know revenue from new, revenue from expansion, revenue from service 
services, revenue from renewals, as I talked about earlier. It's a rainy day in San Francisco. What's your favorite SaaS reading material, Lars? I go to the Funnelholic, I go to Sales Hacker, and I go to Saster. There are so many great bloggers. Craig Rosenberg is one of my favorites. He's also known as the, the Funnelholic. He's spent the last 20 years innovating on many things, SDR, sales operations, marketing operations. I've pulled a lot of my best practices from the Funnelholic. Absolutely love that. And then final one, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? This can be dating back to 1995, or it can be dating back to your time at Cloudera. I'll let you choose the the start point. Yeah, that's, uh, man, uh, you hit me with that one right in the heart. Had I known how much energy, focus, and attention getting into startups and getting into the Valley would take, I would have been better prepared to understand how much that took away from my personal life, my private life. And again, I don't want to get too heavy, but uh, it's very easy to lose focus on those things that are probably way more important, your health, your relationships at home with your family, with your kids. And had I known now what I knew then, I would have spent more time being more present. I would have spent more time maybe not traveling, you know, skipping a trip, skipping travel to one of my inside sales centers to spend a long weekend at home. And again, I've been through some pain on that front. So if I were to tell anyone listening to keep in mind is understand what you have at home, understand where your body is, where your mind is, and is it humming on all cylinders, man? If if you're not healthy, if your relationships are not healthy, it's not going to pay dividends for you at work. Well, Lars, I really appreciate you opening up that. And it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. As I said, the feedback from True, from Ping was incredible. And I'm so delighted with the show. So thank you so much for joining me today, Lars. You got it, Harry. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And I do want to finish by saying what a truly special guest Lars was to have on the show, and I so appreciate him opening up there at the end. And again, a big hand to John Callahan at True Ventures and to Jason Lemkin at Sasta for the intro to Lars today, without which this episode would not have been possible. We really do appreciate it. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes at Sasta, you can on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. Likewise, as I said, Sasta Annual 2018 is just around the corner. All you need to do, enter the promo code Drinks with Harry, those three words, Drinks with Harry, to get your 10% discount discount on ticket price and exclusive invite to the Mojitos only event. It would be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, you must check out Datadog. Datadog takes care of the complex task of managing metrics on the back end. Instead of figuring out how and where to store your data, you get to focus on actually using the data to make better decisions. With turnkey integrations, Datadog seamlessly aggregates metrics and events across the full DevOps stack, from automation tools to source control and bug tracking to databases and common server components. And that's why thousands of enterprises love and trust Datadog, from eBay to Samsung to HP. And you can find out more at datadoghq.com. That really is a must. And again, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Infusionsoft, the all-in-one CRM, sales and marketing software platform for small businesses with over 140,000 users who trust Infusionsoft to close more deals, helping at all stages of the customer journey, from lead capture to nurture and retention automations to online sales and payments, all with a worldwide community of experts dedicated to user success. And you can learn more at Infusionsoft.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Infusionsoft did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's also got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's WePay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.